And they shall make the ephod of gold, of blue, and of purple, of scarlet, and fine twined linen, and with cunning work. It shall have two shoulder pieces thereof joined at the two edges thereof, and so it shall be joined together. And the curious girdle of the ephod which is upon it shall be of the same according to the work thereof, even of gold, of blue, and purple, and scarlet, and fine twined linen. And thou shalt take two onyx stones, engrave on them the names of the children of Israel, six of their names on one stone, and the other six names of the rest on the other stone, according to their birth. With the work of an engraver in stone, like the engraving of a signet, shalt thou engrave the two stones with the names of the children of Israel, and thou shalt make them to be set in ouches of gold. And thou shalt put the two stones of the shul- upon the shoulders of the ephod for stones of memorial unto the children of Israel, and Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord upon his two shoulders for a memorial. And thou shalt make ouches of gold and two chains of pure gold at the ends of the... Uh, at the ends of wreathen work shalt thou make them, and fasten the wreathen chains to the ouches. And thou shalt make the breastplate of judgment with cunning work, after the work of the ephod, thou shalt make it of gold, of blue, of purple, of scarlet, and of fine twined linen, shalt thou make it. Four square shall it, shall it, uh, it shall be, being doubled. A span shall be the length thereof, and a span shall be the breadth thereof. And thou shalt set in its settings of stone, even four rows of stone. The first row shall be a sardius, a topaz, a carbuncle. They shall be the first row. And the second row shall be an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. And the third row, a ligature, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, a jasper. They shall be set in gold in their enclosings. And the stone shall be with the names of the children of Israel, twelve according to their names. Like the engravings of a signet, every one with his name shall they be according to the twelve tribes. And thou shalt make upon the breastplate chains at the ends of of wreathen work of pure gold. And thou shalt make upon the breastplate two rings of gold, and shalt put the two rings upon the two ends of the breastplate. And thou shalt put two wreathen chains of gold in the two rings which are on the ends of the breastplate. And thou shalt take in other two ends of the wreathen chains shalt thou fashion in the two ouches and put them upon the shoulders pieces of the ephod before it. And thou shalt make uh, two rings of gold and shalt put them upon the two ends of the breastplate in the border thereof which is in the side of the ephod inward. And two other rings of gold shalt thou make, and shalt put them on the two sides of the ephod underneath, toward the forepart thereof, over against the other coupling thereof, above the curious girdle of the ephod. And they shall bind upon the breastplate by the rings thereof, upon the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue, that it may be above the curious girdle of the ephod, and that the breastplate be not loosed from the ephod. And Aaron shall bear the names of the children of Israel in the breastplate of judgment upon his heart when he goeth into the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually. And thou shalt put in the breastplate of judgment the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be upon Aaron's heart when he goeth in before the Lord. And Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel upon his heart before the Lord continually. I am fascinated by certain monuments, and they might... Uh, you might share my fascination. I'm not fascinated necessarily by the monuments we understand, but the ones we don't. You see, I understand the pyramids. Uh, They function as headstones for tombs. I understand the Acropolis and the building of temples. 
I understand the building, the edifices of government, the display of power, intimidation, and appeasement. I understand the Colosseum in Rome, the display, a place of spectacle, games, and entertainment. But what fascinates me are ancient monuments that defy simple categorization. One, for instance, is Stonehenge. For all who investigate it, they can't determine its developed use over millennia. As a burial site, I think about, as Stonehenge is often considered and has been discovered to be a burial site, I think about the huge concrete dome that is over Chernobyl. Even uh, the Russians fighting in the Ukraine learned to leave Chernobyl in its $2.3 billion containment center alone, and that's just the one they built most recently. And I think about that in, in connection with Stonehenge, as if maybe Stonehenge is this kind of giant containment device to warn people away from a, a site associated with disease, to warn the unwary against the potential of can contamination. Or maybe it's the ancient version of a crop circle. They just put it up to confuse everyone. But the uncertainty is certainly intriguing. The statutes of Easter Island are another thing that interests me. An island that's over a thousand miles from its closest inhabited neighbor. 900 moai, these heads that we thought were just heads, but now are actually uh, heads and torsos, uh, are there. And they are assumed to be honored or deified islanders from AD 1200 to 1600. But slavery, sickness, and conversion erased all those who were responsible for maintaining the oral history of the people. And so we, we don't know why they made all of these idols or graven uh, statuary. But they remind me of Mount Rushmore. Have you ever thought about Mount Rushmore? The nearest town to Mount Rushmore is Keystone, which has a population in 2020 of 240 people. Not 240,000, 240 people. Its nearest city, major city, is Rapid City, South Dakota, uh, which has a, a population in 2020 of 73,000. Give you an idea what that's like. Shreveport has double that. Without a knowledge of the history of the United States, uh, what would a visitor make of the oddity of going to this remote place where very few people, very si few signs of human uh, inhabitation is, and seeing four stones carved into a hill? What would he make of that? And uh, what would he make, even if he knows about American history, as most people do, if you were to ask many people on the street to name the four presidents whose heads are on Mount Rushmore, I would suggest they might know who three of them are, if you named them. But what about Teddy? Humanity has always had a healthy curiosity. It motivates science, archaeology, history, and exploration. We ask ourselves, what is over that hill? And what will happen if I press this button? All study, I think, tickles our curiosity. And we find uh, curious questions in the Bible. Of all the unknowns, possibly the most intriguing involve two things that are mentioned in this passage. We'll call them two stones, but I'm not really sure that they're stones at all. And when we come to this passage, as we're talking about stones, we might not expect stones to feature so prominently in the instructions for the attire of the high priest. Most of us don't wear clothing that's made exclusively of stones. And yet stones seem to be the most important thing in this passage. They are, they are the thing that uh, generally is spent a lot of time talking about. 
looking at this passage, the fabric that takes up, takes up the most, is not what takes up the most space, but the stones. And we must ask the question, why? Curious, isn't it? I want us to think about this feature in this passage. Again, this passage, like all the passages that describe the tabernacle for us, is not recorded so that we can recreate the tabernacle or recreate this priestly garment. If you look at these instructions and try to make what is being described here, you're going to have a hard time from the very off. Instead, the Lord has preserved these instructions to teach us about himself and what it means and what it takes to draw near to him. It tells us what it means to relate to God than to have him as our portion, our inheritance, and our greatest good. So what do these stones teach us? Well, I want us to look at three groups of stones. We find the onyx stones, the twelve stones, and the two stones. The onyx stones, the twelve stones, and the two, well, I'm going to call them stones until we get there. The first stones are easily identifiable, well, at least as regards their function. As indicated before, the stones feature more prominently than the cloth, but we ought to think about that cloth before uh, looking at the instructions regarding the shoulder. And we engage with a crucial question right at the beginning. The title of the sermon is the ephod, but what is an ephod? Look at verse 6. And they shall make the ephod of gold, of blue, of purple, of scarlet, and fine twined linen with cunning work. What is an ephod? It's a garment, to be sure, because the high priest is going to wear it. It might have looked something like an apron. It's something that goes over the rest of his robes. It has a belt. Look at verse 8. And the, the curious girdle, the belt of the ephod, which is upon it, shall be of the same work, even of the, according to the work thereof, even of gold, of a blue, of purple, scarlet, and fine twined linen. It has a belt. It's... Something that goes over the robes, but other than that, we're not given a lot of instructions about what this looked like. It seems to be a religious garment because it appears even in the mention of idol worship. You can see this in Judges 8, 27, 7, 15, 18, 14 through 20, and Hosea 3, 4. But ephods appear often in the worship of the Lord outside the priestly class, if you look at 2 Samuel 6, 14. This uncertainty has a reason, the fact that we can't replicate it. We are reminded right at the beginning that this passage isn't here to encourage us to replicate the priestly garments. It is here to tell us about God and our relationship to Him. The connection between us and God appears in the very familiar colors that are mentioned for the ephod and the belt. You see them in verses 6 and 8. Blue, gold, purple, scarlet, fine-twined linen. It's been a while, but most of you probably immediately recognize this is the same group of colors that appears in the royal fabric that drapes the tabernacle. It's the same exact colors that appear on the veil before the, ca before the most holy place. It's the same set of colors, minus the gold, that appears on the uh, curtain before the sanctuary and the veil and the gate in front of the courtyard. It's those colors that indicate the presence of God with his people. And here, notice the inclusion of gold. When we looked at the tabernacle before, we mentioned that the people outside, those who weren't the priests, never saw the gold that was a part of the inward uh, fabric. They saw it 
on the high priest. They saw it on the high priest, the one man who is able to enter into the holy place, into the, the, the most holy place, into the very presence of God and live. They saw it on the high priest, and there is something uh, important about that because he reminds them that not all mankind is exempted from that presence. And in a sense, he is their representative. He is bringing them in with him as he enters the most holy place. And we'll look at how that is uh, in just a minute. But for as fascinating as the fabric is, it is the shoulder pieces that dominate the passage. You see them introduced in verse 7. And it shall have two shoulder pieces thereof joined at the two edges thereof, so that it shall be joined together. What is being joined together? What are the two pieces of the ephod? I'm glad you asked, but I can't tell you, uh, because again, this is not given to us to replicate uh, what this garment is. They connect the front to the back, apparently, and on them two stones appear in verse 9. And thou shalt take two onyx stones and grave on them the names of the children of Israel. These stones are called in most English translations of the Bible onyx, but this identification is generally accepted but far from determinative. Hebrew gem names are very uncertain, and that's putting it mildly. It's probably the best we can do with that these are two black stones, and on each stone the names of the sons of Israel appear. Six of their names on one stone and the other six names of the rest on the other stone according to their birth. With the work of an engraver in stone, like the engravings of a signet, shalt thou engrave the two stones with the names of the children of Israel, and, they, and thou shalt make them to be set in ouches of gold. These two stones are to be engraven with these names, and they are to be set in settings of gold, and then placed upon the shoulder pieces of the ephod. Six names appear on one stone, six on the other, twelve names in total, according to the twelve names of the children of Israel. Curiously, we know the names and the order on each stone. The sons of Israel appear in birth order. That means that their tribal names aren't at issue here. Ephraim and Manasseh would be reduced to Joseph, and Levi would appear in the list of the twelve. The first half would read Reuben, Sibion, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, and the other would read Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. Now, that's, we can replicate that. That's great. But which shoulder is which? The Bible doesn't tell you which shoulder each one goes upon. Again, we are not to be replicating this. We are to be recognizing something about it. And the stones are set in gold with gold chains. Uh, look at verse 12 and following. Uh, and thou shalt put the two stones upon the shoulders of the ephod for stones of the memorial upon the children of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord upon his two shoulders for a memorial. And thou shalt make ouches of gold and two chains of pure gold at the ends of wreathen work shalt thou make them and fasten the wreathen chains to the ouches. To the settings, they are to make two chains of gold uh, to fall from them. Uh, we'll look at the likely use of these gold chains later. But finally, we see the importance of the stone there in verse 12, that Aaron is to bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders as a memorial. Every time the high priest approached the Lord, he does so with the people of God on his shoulders. 
In fact, the word here indicates carrying. That the high priest, as he is doing his work throughout the tabernacle, before the presence of the Lord, on the Day of Atonement, is representing the people of Israel before God. In him, Israel comes before the presence of God because he is carrying him there. That is what the high priest did. But our great high priest, the one better than Aaron, surely carried us before the Lord as well. He carried us on his shoulders as he bore our sin. He carried us to the mercy seat with his own blood when he satisfied the wrath of God due to us for our sin. Remember, everything in the tabernacle, everything that the priest wore is pointing forward to the greater priest, the greater tabernacle, the greater presence of God that Jesus was. And you can imagine as uh, you think about Jesus in uh, the relationship to the high priest, carrying the blood into the sanctuary, as the author of Hebrews says, going into the presence of God to make satisfaction for sin. He does so not with just the literal family and the sons of Israel upon his shoulders, but with us, all of his people. And so we can surely see the force of Isaiah's prophecy when he says, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. The word born there is the exact same word as the one here with the high priest carrying Israel on his shoulders. Yet we did esteem and stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. The high priest's garments pointed to the acts of the greater high priest, our great high priest who had finished the work promised in the ephod and the shoulder pieces. That's great news for us who see in these works the, the work of our great high priest, but what does that mean to us? Well, I think it's instructive that Paul writes these words to the churches in Galatia, bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. He writes these words in the aftermath of the reality of sin in the church in, in Galatians 6.1 where he says, those who are in a fault, those you who are spiritual, restore such a one. We certainly, though, cannot atone for sin, but we imitate our great high priest in our dealings with one another, in our bearing with one another. As Paul also writes, Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Again, we're reminded of our greater high priest who entered in with his own blood into the most holy place, bearing upon his shoulders our name in order that we might be forgiven and so are called to forgive others. But surely part of that burden that we are to bear for our brothers and sisters includes praying for them. As the author of Hebrews writes, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
You see the connection in what the author of Hebrews is saying between uh, Christ entering into the most holy place and giving us access to that and us entering in before the throne of grace. Just as our great high priest carried us before the mercy seat, so now that we have access through him to the throne of grace, we imitate our Savior as we bear others and place and plead for the mercy for them and grace for them in their time of need. We see the onyx stone, but secondly, I want us to see the twelve stones. Well, if you thought the shoulder stones were rather odd, these twelve breastpiece stones grow even more complex. Again, we see that there is cloth here, but we also see the rows of stones specified. Now, I called this part the breastpiece because many modern versions dislike the name breastplate. Uh, because they feel that it signals uh, that the underlying material is going to be metallic, and yet the definition of breastplate does not require that. The important thing, though, to remember is that the foundation of this part of the ephod is not metal, it is fabric. And a familiar one, look at verses 15 and 16. Thou shalt make the breastplate of judgment, of cunning work, after the work of the ephod. Thou shalt make it of blue, of purple, of, of, uh, of gold, of blue, and of purple, and of scarlet, and of fine twined linen shalt thou make it. Four square it shall be, being doubled. A span shall be the length thereof, and a span shall be the breadth thereof. Now, for those of you who are interested in what a span is, it is the distance between your thumb and your pinky finger, the end of your thumb and the end of your pinky th finger, uh, that's rather outside of what the point of this text has to tell us. It's a familiar design. It's a familiar fabric. The fabric is the same as we have seen, and I'm not going to recount again all the places we have seen these colors before. It, it matches uh, the presence of God in the fabric therein. And it's not without interest that it's also a square. A square imitating the very presence of God. We can quickly see how the presence of God is seen in this uh, very act. It's as, again, what is happening here is God is assuring his people that though they must stand outside, they are being brought in in a spiritual way by representation through the high priest. The significance of the stones, those, seems focused on their rows. Look at verse 17, And thou shalt set in the settings of stones, even four rows of stones. The first row, and I won't read those stones again. The description seems straightforward, and most of your modern versions may have updated language that seems to help you identify the stones. In reality, they are anything but easily identifiable. In the ESV notes, you will read, uh, The identity of some of these stones is uncertain. Some commentators, though, go beyond that and express doubt that any of these stones have any identifiable modern analogs. Again, and I keep going back to this, and I will keep going back to this, these instructions aren't given to you to help you replicate this garment. Uh, curiously, nine of these stones, though, appear in Ezekiel uh, 28.13 as stones associated with the Garden of Eden. And perhaps their choice reflects the association with the presence of God in paradise. But as intriguing as these speculations are, each stone has a purpose. Look at verse 21. And the names and the stones shall be with the names of the children of Israel, twelve according to their names, like the engravings of a signet. Every one with his name shall be according to the twelve 
tribes. Each stone is set attached to one of the sons of Israel, which is his name will be engraved on the stone. But here, unlike the way it was before, we see a shift to the tribal names, each according to his tribe. That language does not appear in the previous uh, list. This brings up so many questions. In what order do these names appear? Do they appear in birth order according to the order of the stones listing? And since the Lord did not specifically mention birth order as he did before, uh, we must express doubt about this. Do the stones have any specific character attached to them that reflects the character of the tribes that God choose each stone to represent each tribe because there was some uniqueness about that tribe that was represented in that stone? Well, possibly, but we don't even know what the stones were, much less whether they had any meaning and who they referred to. In the end of the day, we don't know. We don't know uh, the finished breastplate. in all this information. Each one of those stones probably had something to do with the character of the tribe. Each one of the stones, even though we don't know exactly which what stone it was and which tribe is attached to each stone, the Lord does, and the Lord had instructions and regulations. Remember, this, we believe in the regulative worship of God and that in his worship, everything must be done according to his will. And so every piece of this uh, garment is significant. And every name must have been attached to a stone for a reason. Each stone was different and his choice by God probably meant something. It's just that we don't know what it is. Now, you're probably asking, with all these unknowns, Pastor Bennett, you've said, we don't know, we don't know, we don't know. Well, that's all well and good, but tell us something we do know. What is, how can you possibly make any application to our lives if we don't know? What is the Bible trying to tell us even with all of this unknown? Yet I think the Word of God reveals something to us even in our ignorance. In that ignorance, I think we learn something of importance. See, those stones may have been even a mystery to the tribes. Can you imagine being one of the 12 tribes of Israel and looking at the the breastplate of of Aaron and seeing your name on a particular stone and wondering, what does that mean? Why did God choose that stone to be Judah or Reuben? I think in those stones we see an important truth, that God knows the character of his people even when they do not. God knew each one of the tribes of Israel and set them in the nation for a purpose and gave them a character that they, even they may not have understood. We don't know a lot of what was a part of the tribes and what characterized them. But in that breastplate, God, by differentiating them, says, I know you as you and not as a conglomeration of Israel. In those rows of stone, the Lord is proclaiming to Israel and by extension to us, I know you and I have chosen you. You are not here by accident. You're not here by a twist of fate. You're not here just by the mere fact of your uh, history. You're here because of promise and choice. 
And what a comfort to us believers that God knows us even when the world does not. We cannot untangle the mystery of the breastplate. I'm not certainly not going to attempt it, but I believe that what the breastplate is telling us is that God knows each and every one of us. He knows us even better than we know ourselves. That though the world may never know our name, God has never forgotten it since he chose us in him, in Christ, from before the foundation of the world. I've heard many of God's people speak as if they were worthless of little, or of little account either in God's kingdom or in the world. And I would assert to you that this is the devil's logic. Doing so adopts the world's valuation of us, which is eternally spiritually pointless. God brought you into this world for a reason. God purchased you with, this, with the blood of his Son for a reason and for an objective. He has set you as a jewel in his kingdom for a reason. He has set his love upon you and sacrificed his son for your redemption. If you would not dare to belittle someone else for whom Christ died, how dare you belittle yourself who are in the same situation? Can you dare despise a child of God? It doesn't matter if you do it to yourself. You matter because Christ died for you. He set you in his heart. And we ought to act in the conformity to that. We see the onyx stones, we see the twelve stones, and finally I want us to look at the two, well, I'm going to call them stones until something better comes along. We come to the Stonehenge of the Old Testament, perhaps the Bible, the one uh, monolith, if we can call it that, or dualith, since there's two of them, that we don't really understand. Two words just dropped into place that can cause great speculation. But I want us to see the attachments of the breastplate uh, before its appendices. To attach the breastplate to the ephod, uh, prior, the prior gold chains might come into play. The exact nature, I'm not going to read all of the, uh, the attachments because they can get rather confusing. And the nature of the attachments and how they function is a large matter of debate. Again, and I will never stop repeating this because we can often find ourselves drifting into imaginations to try to recreate these items. We can't replicate these elements. These verses teach us that gold is the dominant metal of the attachment, a metal we have seen rarely outside of the most holy place of the tabernacle, a metal associated with the presence of God. To add to the complexity, we have other attachments mentioned. Four rings, look at verse 26 and 27. Those shall make two rings of gold, and shall put them upon the two ends of the breastplate and the border thereof, which is, in, which is in the side of the ephod inward, and two other rings of gold shalt thou make, and put them on the two sides of the ephod underneath, toward the four part thereof, over against the other coupling thereof, above the curious girdle of the ephod. Four rings. Where do they go? The best answer remembers that the breastplate is going to be a pouch because we're going to see the two things that get put in there. Two of these rings appear at the bottom of the breastplate and seem to attach to the belt. Two others are at the top and have a purpose that probably a later verse indicates. Look at verse 28. And they shall bind the breastplate by the rings thereof unto the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue, that it may be above the curious ephod of the uh, girdle of the ephod, and that the breastplate be not loose from the ephod. So you have 
two chains coming from the shoulders, two chains probably going to the belt, and two cords of blue attaching from two other rings that go back up to the shoulder pieces. And the best idea, or the best theory here, is that uh, at the four corners in the front, you have the gold, and underneath, you know, if you think about a pouch, uh, at the bottom and the back, and close, the place closest to the body of the high priest, you have two other rings that have the blue cord behind the, the gold. Now, naturally, this is just one way the commentators have tried to make sense of these instructions, uh, and there are many who say, no, that's not the way it happened at all. But to me, this seems to be the, the best of all the alternatives. The important issue, though, is that the breastplate is to be permanently attached to the ephod, and it contained a pouch. And this is important because this ephod is going to show up again, and what's in the pouch is going to show up again. Even though the breastplate or the breastplate piece is not mentioned uh, when the ephod is mentioned. So what goes in the pouch? Look at verse 30. And thou shalt put in the breastplate of, judge, of the judgment the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be upon Aaron's heart when he goeth in before the Lord. The Urim and the Thummim. If there's anything in Scripture that is more intriguing, more curious, more undefined, I do not know what it is. These two things are uh, the most intriguing part of Scripture, I think, if you're of a curious mind, because we don't know a lot about them. I call them stones because they are together with all the other stones, and most commentators think they're stones, but we have, we have really no reason to believe that they were stones at all. Well, what they did was that they communicated the will of the Lord to the high priest, possibly even on the Day of Judgment. On that day, on the Day of Atonement, excuse me, on that day the lots were, uh, lots were divided to stack, uh, between uh, the sacrifice of the goat and the scapegoat. The two goats were brought uh, to the, the ta tabernacle, and lots were cast, and one would be sacrificed, and the other would be let off in the desert. You can look at this in Leviticus 16, verse 8. And some commentators think that these are the devices that decided which one was which. We believe that it was this oracle that David sought when he used the ephod, if you look at 1 Samuel 23.9. Uh, before this, if you remember, Doeg the Edomite uh, goes and kills all the priests, and Abiathar uh, escapes with the ephod and brings it to David. And David, after he uh, has a little bit of problem at Ziklag with people uh, getting on him, he consults, he asks Abiathar to bring the ephod to seek the Lord's counsel. And so, uh, we understand that this is what Israel sought for divine guidance. And we know that even though you would think that these two elements are very easily, easily used, they can be silent. After all, in, in 1 Samuel 26.6, Saul tries to uh, hear or receive word from the Lord through the Urim and the Thummim, and the Lord doesn't answer him. So what, what, is, what are these things? I don't know. We're not given them. And I think there's a reason why they aren't explained to us, nor are their usage explained to us. After all, think about this. How many Christians today wish that they could resort to such oracles? If I could give you two things and that, that through which I guarantee to you the Lord would speak to you, how many... I could make a lot of money in the Christian world. 
And people may ask, why hasn't God given us such a valuable thing that we all desire to use? Well, in the hurly-burly in life, trying to decide what God's will is for us, what choice we should make, wouldn't we want a Urim and a Thummim? Yet I suggest to you, dear brothers and sisters, that God has given us something infinitely better. He has given us His Word. Then a lot of us say, oh yeah, well, yeah, the Bible's nice, but it really doesn't help me when I'm trying to cho choose between A and B. But I ask you, consider what is better. Is it better for us to look at God as a divine fortune teller, an infallible magic eight ball, or a person with whom we have a relationship with? If God had given us merely the Urim and the Thummim, how would we look at God and what in vision or understanding of who God was would we have? Would we reduce him to just this thing that makes sure that I'm on the right track. Instead, he has given us his word so that we might have a relationship with him. The Urim and the Thummim weren't the ultimate purpose of the breastplate, though. Look at verse 29. And Aaron shall bear the names of the children of Israel upon the breastplate of judgment upon his heart when he goeth into the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually. This, this fact is mentioned twice. You see it again in verse 30. And they shall be upon Aaron's heart when he goeth in before the Lord. And Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of the Lord Israel upon his heart before the Lord continually. It emphasizes the importance of this plate over Aaron's heart, over against the curiosity of the Urim and the Thummim. And what does it mean that Aaron is bearing the judgment of the people? It's a curious expression. One lexicon associates it with the judgment of the people on the Day of Atonement. The judgment of Israel. Will the Lord forgive their sins as Aaron comes into the most holy place? Upon his chest is a representation of the people as they are. Upon his shoulders is a representation of the people as they are promised to be. And he brings all of this in on the Day of Judgment, on the Day of Atonement. That is the burden of the priest, the spiritual state of the people. Will he, they be forgiven? And that spiritual state also affected their physical state. So my friend, I must ask you, what is your spiritual state? How stands your heart before God? The Bible tells us that by birth our heart is not right before God. It hates the Lord. It cannot endure the Lord's punishment. We will face the judgment of hell, eternal punishment due to our cosmic treason. And yet God has sent the great high priest to satisfy that judgment for us. For Jesus is God-made man. He lived a perfect life to die as a worthy sacrifice for his people. He rose from the dead to proclaim that all he did, that the Lord had accepted it. And all those who put their trust in Jesus will escape hell and be given a home in heaven. By birth you hate God, but by faith God will grant you love. Do you believe that what Jesus did, he did for you? Will you turn from the hate within to pursue the love of God? My brothers and sisters, we are not alone. Twelve stones but one square over one heart to carry them before the one God. 
we are, all, we are not all the same. Any more than those 12 stones or the 12 tribes that they represented had identical personalities or characteristics. Each one a different stone rep representing this fact that God's people are a different and discreet people. And yet they formed one nation, one people. We see this in families. I have six people in my family, and yes, we share uh, some common traits, but we are all very different people. And sometimes those differences are more pronounced than at other times. We may disagree at times and misunderstand each other at times, but the love that we bear one another reminds us that as a family, we are united. And this also should obtain to the church. We carry the oneness in our manyness in our hearts, or at least we ought to. Satan would love to show, sow discord in the church. No wonder seeing it in people, seeing the discord in the church, the, the animosity between brothers in Christ raises the Lord's hate, as you see it in Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. And we are called to endeavor to preserve our unity. And we do this as represented by the high priest, by keeping one another in our hearts, by remembering one another. I find it is so easy not to care. It can be hard and often painful to care about others. And Paul writes, we ha have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office. Being many are one, uh, so we being many are one body in Christ, and every one members of one another. Therefore rejoice with them that rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Whether in plenty or in want, in rejoicing or weeping, we as brothers and sisters in Christ in the church share the, our lives together. Now for this church, I judge that I may say with Paul, but as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And I believe that to be true of us. And yet I want to remind our hearts, for we are soon often to forget and be selective. We love one another, yes, but it is easy for us to forget and fall into bad practices. When we love one and not another, we are partial. It does not matter on what basis we devise such partiality. James rightly judges all, judges all partiality, whether rich or poor or any other condition, rightly when he writes, If ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin and are convicted of the law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and offend in one point, he is guilty of all. Interestingly, James says that if you show partiality, you're not just, uh, you just haven't just made an oopsie. If you show partiality in the church, and he's talking about the partiality both between rich and poor, you've made yourself a transgressor. You've made yourself a, vi a sinner, a violator of the entire law. Let us therefore not find ourselves as transgressors, but keep the whole church over our hearts, bearing them to the throne of grace. We remind ourselves of the unity of God's people here at the Lord's Supper. In a few minutes, I'll read this statement that Paul writes to the church at Corinth. For we being many are one, are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. When we gather together around the Lord's table, we are doing that which the breastplate represented. We are representing that we, though we are many, are one in Christ. We many eat one bread for 
we are all one in him. Here we see the reason, the basis, and the motive for our union. Even Jesus, our one Savior, our prophet, priest, and king. Let's pray together. O Lord, we pray that you would keep our hearts from partiality, that you would give us boldness, knowing that you have known us from the foundation of the world and set your worth in our lives. Remind us ever to pray for one another, forgiving one another, just as you, for Christ's sake, have forgiven us. Hear our prayer, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.